All right. Well, I don't know if you've been in a situation or a scenario or maybe at least witnessed this where you saw somebody, maybe you knew them, maybe you didn't, but they were doing something that you were like, how are you doing this? Like an example for me, uh, it was a couple of years ago, there's an NBA player by the name of Kyrie Irving, and he made these YouTube videos where he, where was, called, he was called Uncle Drew. And so what happened was he had this makeup artist, and he would spend like an hour or two in the makeup chair, and uh, they would dress him and make him look like he was a grandpa. And so they gave him a little belly. Uh, they, they put his hair gray. They gave him a gray beard. And he goes out to, you know, somewhere in like New York, New Jersey, where they're playing pickup basketball at night. And of course, some of the people had to be in on it, but one of the guys pretends to get hurt. And so this old grandpa shows up and he's like, well, I'll play, put me in. And everyone's like looking around because there's a lot of people there. People do this thing. And they're like, what is he doing? And I'm watching this, and I'm like, well, if, I were, if I didn't know what was going on, I'd be like, no, you can't play. Like, of course. But anyway, people are nicer than I am. And so he shows up, and he starts playing. And he is bad on purpose. And so he doesn't guard anybody. He misses wide-open shots. He, like, fumbles the ball out of bounds. But as they continue the game, he slowly gets better. He, like, makes a shot. Uh, he then does a layup. He hits a, He switches a three-pointer. Then he starts dunking the ball. And the faces of everybody are just like, what is happening here? Like this old man is like, and then he starts like schooling everybody, doing like these 360 things. Everyone's just like mind blown. Like, what? Is, you're old. How are you doing this? Like, we're not old and we can't even do this, right? They had this category of this old man doing things that they were like completely mesmerized. And like, how is this possible? Uh, and so anyway, it's a funny thing. You can go look up it later today. But I share that because today uh, we are actually looking at one of Jesus's most well-known miracles. And so whether you've actually read this text or not, you have undoubtedly heard it before. And so one of the things that, that's, I think, enjoyable when we preach through books of the Bible is that we get to look at texts like this that are well-known, and not in necessarily new ways, but in ways we often miss when we hear, hear stories and we actually don't actually see the beauty of all of what's going on. And I would also preface this by saying the disciples up until this point, if you have been with us, have seen Jesus perform miracles. He's healed people. He's forgiven people. Like he's done really cool stuff. You would assume that they might come to expect Jesus to do what he's actually going to do, but they are actually going to be completely blown away. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 is where we'll be starting in verse 35. If you don't have one and want to read along with us, you can take one of those black ones in the seat in front of you. Uh, Mark 4 is one of the two times in the book of Mark uh, where Mark kind of departs from just kind of giving us these quick hit stories, narrative of all the things that Jesus is doing. And, now, and in Mark 4, he instead focuses on a few parables of Jesus. And so up until this point, Jesus has been in a boat. He's in, in the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is a very hilly and mountainous region. And so he's on a boat for two reasons. One, he's beginning to be crushed by all the people who are trying to touch him for miracles. And two, for amplification purposes, so that the crowd can hear him. So he's in the boat, and he's explaining all of these things that are going on. And he comes to the end of the day. And here's what happens. Uh, you can go back to, yeah, stay on the mark, and we'll look at that boat in just a second. Here's what it says, verse 35. On the day, or on that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him, which is Jesus, along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. 
So again, what's happening here, he's been teaching all day. We know this from uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, and so he's already on the boat. He invites the disciples to join him. Of course, here it says there's other boats because in Jesus' ministry, uh, more than just the disciples would follow him around. And so, of course, his 12 disciples were his you know, most uh, closest apprentices, if you will. But he had other people in other places who would support the ministry and help them out. And so there's a group of people, we're not sure how many boats, but a, a number of them, or maybe not a number of them, but at least a few, who all get in boats with Jesus. Jesus, and they're going to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, to give you some context so we understand what's going on, here's a picture of a boat of what it actually would have looked like that Jesus and disciples were on. Uh, this boat is a kind of a replica, and basically what would happen is you could fit maybe up to 12, 15 people if you want. It'd be pretty packed, but you could fit a number of people on these boats. Uh, they're going to sail across the sea. I am not a boat person. I don't know what anything is, but I looked it up. The front of the boat, where that oar is, there's that little platform. Form. Um, I believe that's called the hole. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know we're going to see in a second that Jesus has fallen asleep. And so Jesus is sleeping under that hole in the boat. Uh, some of the boats would actually even have it enclosed off with like this little door that you could get into. Uh, so that's where Jesus is going to be. There's a couple of boats of this size. So not very big, but enough for a few people to get on there. If You could fish if you wanted to as well, but to get across the Sea of Galilee. And then remember for context, uh, the sea at the longest point was about 13 miles long, north to south, and seven to eight miles wide east to west at its widest point. And so it's pretty big to get across the whole thing. They are kind of on the eastern, or I'm sorry, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to cross over to the eastern side on a boat about this size. And so here's what it says next, verse 37. It says, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. Now again, just some context what's going on here. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded again by a lot of hills and mountainous regions, and there, there's a specific mountain called Mount Hermon, which is about 30 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, that is 9,200 feet above sea level. And so you have a quite a big difference between the Sea of Galilee and its surrounding areas, and here's why this is important. What will happen, of course, even today, is that you get the, the warm air of the lake, or of the lake or the sea that kind of rises up, and the cool air of the mountains that comes in over the lake. And so what can happen is there are times where there are these intense windstorms that really come out of nowhere. Uh, and so again, if you're, it's like, um, you know, some of these disciples were professional fishermen before they met Jesus. So it's not as if they were like, hmm, there's some dark clouds. Let's try to get over to the other side before it comes. Like it probably looked fine. And then out of nowhere, these things, these storms can come. And so uh, maybe like a modern day example to kind of get you in the idea of how this would happen. If you've ever been on a plane and ever experienced clear air turbulence, that's kind of what this is. Like you're, you're flying in a plane. You know this could probably happen at some point where you get some turbulence, but you don't know. It kind of comes out of nowhere and it kind of shakes you a little bit. Or if you think of uh, like living in Tornado Valley, like in the Midwest areas of the United States where there's going to be tornadoes, like you can't live your life as if a tornado is always going to hit, but you know they can come and they can come out of nowhere. And so that is what's happening here. In fact, where it says in verse 37, a great windstorm, you can actually, that can actually be translated from the Greek as hurricane. Now, it's not to say that it necessarily has this, the same hurricane, you know, force winds that we experience, but it is a massive storm that comes out of nowhere. And so again, this is not some small thunderstorm that was like a little scary. You're going to see here that you have these professional fishermen that are scared for their life. Again, if you want to think of how this might make you feel, have you ever seen on YouTube uh, the, those big shipping containers in the ocean where there's those massive storms and the waves are like engulfing the front of it and you're like, 
how? And like, everyone's just like, chill. You're like, what? You're going to die. But they're used to it, right? Now, again, uh, proportions are different. They're not quite as big as like these massive ocean waves, but you've got a small boat in a sea. And this is what it feels like to these disciples, that the water is engulfing the boat. And so they start to freak out. And then it says this in verse 38. So he was in the stern. So Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? So here, I feel like sometimes we read the scriptures and we kind of, I don't know, over-spiritualize it. Uh, Jesus, if we're being honest, he's sleeping likely because he's exhausted, right? He's been teaching all day and probably many days beforehand. He's traveling around like he is really tired. Uh, I just make this come to mind because, you know, here at New City, we have two services, and it's always funny to me, like last week I didn't preach, how much energy I have on a Sunday afternoon because I didn't preach at all. And I'm like, and I'm only preaching like 30-ish minutes two times. He's preaching all day. So he's likely exhausted and he is asleep. Now, the irony here is that the only place we see in the Gospels that Jesus is asleep is during a storm. Right? So he is physically exhausted, but I don't think, I think it is maybe appropriate to also point out it does seem to be like his trust in the Father is different than ours. Like he knows what's going on, but it is not impacting him to the same degree that it is impacting the disciples. So the disciples wake him up just like we would because they think they are going to die. So this is probably one of the biggest storms they've ever been in in their life. Again, it's the Sea of Galilee. It's likely at night. They're probably somewhere in the middle of it. So you don't see any land anywhere. They think they're going to be shipwrecked and die. So the problem here, we have to ask ourselves, what's the problem? Uh, it doesn't seem to be, as we'll see in a second, it doesn't seem to be that they actually woke up Jesus and asked for help. That's not the problem. The problem is how they do it. What do they say to Jesus? Don't you care? It's kind of like a rebuke to Jesus. I can't believe you would let this happen. Why don't you stop it? Why is this happening? Now, again, I also think it's sometimes easy for us to make fun of the disciples. Sometimes you hear people, you know, they're teaching, they're preaching, but I can't believe they did that. And I'm always like, we would do the exact same thing. Like if you were scared for your life and you literally have Jesus who has done all of these cool things so far, of course you would wake him up. And of course you would be like, bro, you told us to do this and now we're going to die. Like, why, don't, why, did you, why did you let this happen? Like, why did you stop it? You, would, you and I would both think, do you care? And so that's what's going on here. Now, on top of what's going on here, I just want to point out one more thing. I know this is a lot of information, um, that the scriptures are brilliantly written. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, the Old Testament and the New Testament, I mean, it is absolutely amazing. So if I can, I want to point out one more thing for you before we kind of see what's actually going on here. Uh, maybe ask yourself this question. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, where else in Scripture do we see a boat, full, a boat full of people stuck in a storm that's going to shipwreck and kill everyone? Right. The answer to that question is Jonah. And Mark here actually deliberately is using language that parallels Jonah's account. So let me show you how. Uh, of both stories, you have Jesus and Jonah, and they are in a boat. Uh, in fact, in Jonah chapter 1, the description of the storm that suddenly comes across Jonah's boat is used the, the same language that Mark uses to describe the type of storm that has suddenly come on the disciples' boat. Uh, in both stories, Jonah is asleep in the lowest part of the boat during the storm. Uh, Jesus is also asleep in the somewhat lowest part of the boat uh, during the storm as well. And, you're free, and, you're, and, you're, and you read this and you're like, how are they asleep? And at the same time, in both stories, you have everybody freaking out, calling upon their gods to 
try to save them. So in Jonah's account, you have all these people freaking out, crying out to their God, and you have the captain who comes down and wakes up Jonah and says, uh, you need to wake up. What are you doing asleep? Maybe you can call out to your God, and maybe he'll rescue us. In this account, of course, they're all calling out to Jesus, but they wake Jesus up, and they say, Jesus, maybe you can do something about it. And so that is what's going on here. And in both accounts, the sailors on the boat think they are going to die. This is an exact replica of what happens in Jonah chapter 1. And so again, you have the disciples here doing all this, and they're essentially asking Jesus this question, right? Literally asking this question. Why don't you care? Or maybe put another way, God, why would you let this happen? Right? And to make all of this worse, as we've just read, uh, Jesus here not only seems to or obviously allows this to happen, but he actually leads his disciples into the storm. The only reason they are there is because Jesus said, hey, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And so I think it's worth us asking here in our life, um, why, the, the times in our life where we ask these same questions, like, God, why? God, why did you let my dad die? God, why didn't you heal them? God, why uh, didn't you stop that accident or fix that relationship or stop that from happening? Clearly, you could have done it, but you didn't. Why don't you care? That seems to be what's going on here. And here's what we see, that the reality of the storms that we experience, and clearly the reality of the storm that the disciples experience, are becoming between them and what they actually know about Jesus. Or put another way, our storms cause us to forget who Jesus is. So in the midst of them being afraid and terrified, and hear me, rightfully so, they are forgetting who is actually with them in the boat. Right? They're already forgetting what happened maybe an hour or two earlier in verse 35 where Jesus says, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. Now let me ask you, if Jesus says, let's do something, do you think it's going to happen? There's a good probability, right, that the creator of all the universe, when he says, let's do this, it is actually going to happen. And so in the midst of the terror and the being afraid and the worry, the disciples for, forget this. And, and I think it's appropriate for us to sit back and assume and, and to think about in our own lives that I think part of the problem that when we get frustrated with our faith is that when we feel or hear that God is leading us to do something, we fill in the gaps and we assume how it's supposed to happen in order to get from point A to point B right? Like the disciples. Jesus says, let's cross over to the other side of the, boat, uh, other side of the lake. Of course they assumed that there was not going to be any problems. They have Jesus, the son of God, who's doing all these things. So of course he's supposed to be protected. We're with him. There's not going to be any problems. And so they start freaking out, understandably so. But you have to imagine that there is some frustration here, that this is not supposed to happen this way. And so they get even more upset. And I wonder in our own lives, even legitimately, when hard things, difficult things, excruciatingly painful things happen to us, and we ask God, why would you allow it to happen in this way? Because I thought you told me we were supposed to do this. Now, we're going to see the disciples are going to get there. They're going to get to the other side of the lake, spoiler alert, which, of course, we're in Mark chapter 4, so you probably assume the story's not over yet, right? But it does not happen at all the way they assume it will. And so I just, maybe just to encourage you this morning, if you're in the midst of something really difficult and you are trying to be faithful and you are asking God why, hey, that is perfectly okay. But we have to step back and ask ourselves, are we assuming that it's supposed to work out a certain way when Jesus never promises that? All he told the disciples is, we're going to go to the other side. He did not tell them how it was going to work. And of course, it caused a lot of frustration and anger for them, right? In the midst of their storm, they are forgetting who Jesus is and what he's actually 
capable of. And so verse 39, we'll continue. Here's what it says next. So they're freaking out. They ask, they wake him up. Why did you let this happen? It says this. He got up, he being Jesus, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. Uh, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And so here again, continuing on this Jonah theme, here's what we see. If you remember the Jonah story, what happens? Uh, Jonah has to convince the sailors to throw him over the boat, right? To essentially kill him, to throw him into the sea. And they're all like, no, we don't want to do it. And then it says this literally in Jonah. Jonah says to them, there is only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you live. And so they eventually agree and they throw Jonah over into the sea. And immediately the sea becomes calm. Now you might say, this is where the stories diverge because Jesus does not get thrown into the lake. The question is, again, knowing that Mark is mapping Jesus' story on Jonah, is their story divergent here, or is the story of Jonah actually showing what Jesus is coming to do? So, for example, uh, in the book of Matthew, Jesus literally tells some of the religious leaders in the crowds, uh, he says to them, one greater than Jonah is here. And of course, he's talking about himself. He's pointing to the day where one day that Jesus literally will go into the sea for us, and he will experience the storm and the difficulty and the wrath of God on our, on our behalf. How? By willingly, like Jonah's example, uh, being killed for us, that he is going to the storm and the waves on our behalf on the cross. That is a foreshadowing of what Jesus gladly and with joy does for us. And so what happens in the book of Jonah, they throw Jonah overboard, and it immediately becomes calm. In this uh, specific example, Jesus isn't thrown overboard, but he tells this wind to be still, and immediately the wind and the sea become calm. Uh, in fact, the Greek word here is pephemiso, which literally means be muzzled. So he muzzles the sea and the water, and as we'll see in a second, he doesn't just stop the storm. Like, it, it would be a cool thing, I guess, if, like, there's this massive windstorm that, you know, your boats, all the boats are, like, about to get underwater, and the storm kind of stops. Like, it kind of calms down, goes away. But not only does that happen, as we're going to see here and in the Jonah account, the waves also completely die down. Like, it's like glass. And so you see this, and you're like, what is happening? I can't believe, so he, he stops the, the storm, he stops the sea, and the disciples are just speechless. And so here's what happens in verse 40. Then he, again Jesus, after he makes the storm go away and the water is just like perfectly still, says, then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? So Jesus here after calming, rebuking and muzzling the storm, is now rebuking the disciples. And he says to them, he seems to connect their fear, right, to a lack of faith in him and what he is going to do. Again, it's not wrong to turn to Jesus in your time of distress. If you got that from this story, that would be incorrect. What was wrong here is assuming, for the disciples assuming that Jesus didn't care. It's not that he was woken up, and it's not that he was asked for help. The problem is they assumed that Jesus didn't care, right? Did they not trust Jesus? The problem here, again, is not uh, how, it's not how uh, that they woke up Jesus, but that, how, how, sorry, it's not that they woke up Jesus, but how they spoke to him is the problem and what they assumed as they rebuked Jesus for not caring. So Jesus rescues them, even though they're kind of incorrectly approach him. And then look at the irony of verse 41. I think this is awesome. It says, and this is talking about the disciples here, and they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this, even the wind 
and the sea obey him. Right? So in the midst of this amazing miracle, they think they're going to die. They go from being afraid of the storm to terrified of Jesus. Right? You would think everything was fixed. We're good. Their, their score, their scariness gets amplified. Right? They get, they're get not just afraid, they are terrified of Jesus and what he has just done. The question is, why? Well, it's also helpful to know in ancient contexts and cultures, uh, the sea and the water and the oceans, um, they are seen as destructive because they are, uh, and scary. They are also viewed as something that nobody can control except God himself. In fact, even in Genesis chapter 1, uh, when you have the creation, before there is order to it, it literally says, uh, the water is seen as chaotic. It says this, darkness hovered over the watery depths. So in the ancient world, water is something that is uncontrollable. It is scary that nobody can control it except God, right? Or in other cultures, they would say the gods themselves. And so you would do all these things asking the gods to keep floods from happening or from rain from destroying your crops or if you're fishing, like not to die. It was a big deal. And so what's happening here is that the power that Jesus has is uncontrollable. The disciples have seen Jesus done a lot of stuff, but they have not seen him do this, right? In their mind, no person can do that. And so they are shocked, right? It makes me think of, and it's not like the same, you know, level of like shock, like terrified, but like, have you ever, been, have you ever seen something happen? And you're just like speechless. Like I was looking up uh, the world record for the Rubik's Cube is 4.2 seconds. So I, I'm like, how do you do this? Like, I'm not, of course, I'm not scared of the guy because it's like, well, what are you going to do to me because it's a Rubik's Cube? Anyway, uh, but it's like, I watched this video where it's like under this, this bucket, they, tick, they pick up the bucket, he picks up the Rubik's Cube for like five seconds and just like looks at it, puts it down, puts his hand on the timer and they like beep something and he's like, well, you know, without the part, but you know, the noise, you know, whatever. Anyway, and it's just like, and he's done and he puts it down and everyone's like, I'm like, how? I don't even know if I could do like a whole rotation on a Rubik's Cube in four seconds. And he does it, right? Like, how is this possible? Or I think of uh, on July 4th, they have the uh, hot dog eating contest. So Joey Chestnut, uh, his world record, what is it? 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. I don't even know if I've eaten 76 hot dogs in my life. And he does it, and you're like, how? Like, where does it all go? Like, what is the next 24? I don't know, maybe these questions we don't want to know the answer to, right? <laughs> Or I was watching uh, this free climber call, uh, climb El Capitan, or however you say it, in Yosemite. Was that? Yeah. yeah. Did I say it right? Okay, good. I only know it's called that because it used to be a, uh, an Apple, you know, software thing. Anyway, and he, he climbed, I think it was 3,000 feet. So El Capitan, Yosemite, it's 90, 90 degree vertical with no ropes and no harness. First one to do it, I think it was in 2017. I don't know if anyone else has done it since. And so I'm watching this, and my hands are sweating. And I'm like, I know he survives because they're doing an interview with him. And he's like, like there's one part, there's like a crack in the, in the rocks, and he's like doing this somehow. I'm like, how are you climbing up? Right? And it's like, you, like how? It makes no sense. And then in some ways, but even amplified even more, this is what the disciples are feeling with Jesus. Like, how is this possible? Nobody is able to do this. And I also think it's interesting to note here that Jesus calls on no higher power to stop the storm. He does no ritual. He doesn't do any sort of sacrifice or any sort of incantation. He literally says, be still or be muzzled, and it stops. And so in the midst of all of this power, the disciples are confronted with this question. Who is Jesus? Right? Like, who actually is this man? Because he is more powerful or stronger than what I actually thought. And so the disciples here are confronted with this question. Right? Will their, will their fear of him and his power lead him to trust in him, 
or lead him away. Right? And so this story, we see an amazing display of Christ's power. And next week, we're in, in Mark chapter 5, we're also going to see an amazing display of Jesus' power. And you're going to get different reactions from the people who saw it. Because these people are terrified, not just that he healed someone, because that's cool, like you like that, right? Not just that he forgave someone, because you know, we like to be forgiven, but his sheer power makes them afraid. Because if he can do this, what can't he do? Right? What can't he do. And of course, it's important for us to remember here that Jesus is not just putting on a show. Everything he does is specific and for a reason, right? He's trying to demonstrate something to him, to them. And it's interesting to me, I don't know why this is what popped up into my mind as I was reading this passage. Uh, it doesn't go 100% with it, but this is what popped up to my mind. It popped up to my mind the uh, story that the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And if you're familiar with that book, you know, these kids like go through this wardrobe and uh, they, they lend, and lend, or sorry, end up in like this mythical land with all these animals and everything. And there's a king who's the good king called Aslan. And you have like the white witch who's the bad, the bad king or the bad queen or whatever. And these kids are journeying through this mythical land, and they come across the beaver family. And the beaver family is helping, the th- I think there's a couple of kids, uh, get to, you know, see what's going on, King Aslan, all that sort of thing. And they have a conversation in the book, and here's how the conversation goes. Uh, one of the girls named Lucy is talking to the beaver family. It says this, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Talking about this king, this lion. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Well, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Then it says, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan, Without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy, right? So I just like, they're confronted with the power and the majesty. And so the first thing they ask is, can I trust him, right? Because if I, what is he going to do to me if I see him? And then it says this, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Now, what's interesting as we read this, and if we think of our modern concept of God, which again is, whether people are Christians or not, it's very informed by our kind of Judeo-Christian beliefs. Like we have this idea that God is good and God is loving and that God is caring. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why? Now, we might want that to be true because if God created everything, he is over everything, like we hope that he's loving because if not, that could be bad for us. But the question is, Where do we get this idea that this powerful king of the universe is good? Um, I'll tell you where we don't get it. Uh, We don't get it from nature because nature, while beautiful, is destructive. Natural disasters kill people. I mean, it is scary. Just like the sea, it cannot be controlled. And so nature might show you that God is beautiful, but I'm not sure that if you look at it objectively that you would say, well, it means God is good. Um, how about how we treat one another, right? According to scripture, human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, the co-rulers of the earth that God is inviting us into his kingdom. Well, how do we treat one another? Of course, we, there are really cool acts of kindness that are really exciting to see, but we are terrible. We kill people. 
We go to wars. We do genocide, sometimes over the dumbest stuff, right? When you see people, you can see creativity, and you can see people work together. But do you see goodness, like, on the macro level? I'm not sure. Or life itself, evil and suffering. (laughs) There is nothing good about evil and suffering. So the question is, how do we get to this idea that God is good? Well, I'll tell you, in my studies, and you know, feel free to do some looking of your own, there's only one place that I find that, and that's the gospel. That God who created everything in the midst of the evil and the suffering and us choosing to go our own way and dishonoring him, what does he do? Intentionally and willingly comes into time in the form of a man named Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Not because we, he needed to, not because he needs us, or not because we deserved it. But simply out of love for us, he came to, do, to live a life that you and I could not live and to invite us into his kingdom through the power of the Spirit. That you and I, in the midst of our shame and brokenness and going our own way, can ask and call on God for grace and forgiveness. And he always responds to repentance with grace. The gospel shows us that while God is certainly powerful, he is also good. He is also loving because he is coming to a broken people and inviting us into himself simply because he cares. And so if you are experiencing difficulties and hardships in your life, uh, here's what maybe I want to encourage you with today. Again, thinking about what the disciples are going through and how God is, Jesus is leading them into it. Here's Here's what we see, that the presence of pain does not equal a lack of love. So hardship, difficulty, uh, maybe God leading you in a direction you didn't experience, ex- expect or things not going the way that you wanted, it does not therefore equal that God does not care and that God does not love you. And the encouragement for us to read here that if the disciples are not going to, if Jesus is not going to abandon disciples in the ultimate storm, right, their life themselves, then what makes you think that he will abandon you in the smaller storms of your life, as if he is somehow unaware of what you're going through. Now, hear me. This does not mean it makes sense. It does not mean we can't ask God why. It does not mean we can't have doubts or questions. But what the gospel shows us in the midst of all of the pain and difficulties in our life, here's what we do know. Whatever you are going through, it is not because God doesn't care. Because if God doesn't care, he would not have come. The disciples are terrified. They are afraid. And it's not because God doesn't love them. It's because they are just, a, they see the power and the majesty and the might and the, and the storm that they are going through. So they are afraid, but it's not because God doesn't love them. In fact, what we see here, that Jesus rescues them, even though they rebuke Jesus in an inaccurate or an incorrect way. The presence of pain does not equal a lack of love. And so all that to say, to close, I think one of the main ideas that we were supposed to take away from this passage, certainly the biggest thing that the disciples took away from what they just experienced from Jesus is this, that nothing is outside of Jesus' control. Nothing. If he can control the waves and the oceans and the sea, which again, in the ancient culture, nobody can control that stuff except God alone, then he can do anything. Again, to be clear, it is the power of Jesus that terrifies the disciples, right? If he can do this, he can do anything. And so I really hope the things that he chooses to do are for our good. Now, at the same time, while this hopefully is somewhat of an encouragement to you, at the same time, knowing this truth that nothing is outside of Jesus' control, if we're honest, can also be discouraging. Because what happens if this is true? Well, then God, why don't you? 
Why don't you stop that suffering? Why did you allow that to happen? God, I'm trying to share your love with a coworker or a friend, and they are not, don't you care? Aren't you supposed to like want to introduce people into your kingdom? God, this relationship or this marriage or my kids, like why don't you if you can't? Right? Why don't you? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to invite the band back on the stage, and we are going to move into a time of confession. And today, I want to take a second as we do this time of confession together, remembering the truth that nothing is outside of Jesus' control. And so here's what I want to do. Every week at New City, we take a few minutes, and we pray privately before the Lord, and we confess our sin and our brokenness, knowing that God always responds to repentance with grace. This is not something we do out of obligation. This is something we do out of invitation. To know that God loves us no matter where you are. You can experience his grace and his love today, not after you do a bunch of things to earn it back. And so what I think would be helpful for us to do is to to confess our brokenness and then to confess either one of two things. Maybe to confess the areas in your life where you have not believed that Jesus is actually in control. That maybe you've stopped praying for something that you've been praying for for a long time because he hasn't done anything. And the, the stopping praying is not because you're discouraged, it's because you think that, well, he actually can't do anything. So that's you. I want to encourage you to take this time and say, God, I'm sorry for for the times I haven't trusted you. Or if you are discouraged and you're like, God, I have been praying and you are doing nothing, uh, maybe would you go to the Lord and ask him to give you the courage to continue to pressing on, to continue to press on, not to give up, not to stop believing, not to stop trusting, uh, not to stop hoping, but to continue to follow him and having the courage and the honesty to continue to ask him to move. And so knowing that nothing is outside of Jesus' control, would you take a few seconds, uh, confess your need for him, and ask him to allow you to trust him to move in the big areas of your life. And then I'll close us in prayer.